Hi, I'm Ricky DeRiz, and this is episode 11 of the Mind That Ego podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by David Lorimer, the chair of the Galileo Commission and the program director of the Scientific and Medical Network. He is the author and editor of over a dozen books, including The Spirit of Science, Thinking Beyond the Brain, Science, Consciousness and Ultimate Reality, and more recently, The Protein Crunch and A New Renaissance. David is an absolute fountain of knowledge. This episode is completely full with so many different references. I recommend you sit down, take some time, you get a notepad and a pen, (laughs) and you get ready to take some notes because it really is um, an encyclopedia fantastic overview and starting point of exploring the relationship between spirituality and science. Talking from first-hand experience, this really is integral to not only mental health, but the way that we view the world. And we often don't realize the impact, the scientific worldview, at least the material mainstream worldview, has on the way we relate with ourselves, with our spirituality, and with our relationship with the world and the wider cosmos. In 1610, when Galileo presented the discoveries that he'd found through looking through his telescope, in the realization that the planets orbited the sun and not the earth, which was the common view at the time, there was a lot of resistance, and Galileo was even condemned by the Roman Catholic Inquisition. Strikingly, there were even philosophers and scientists at the time who simply refused to look through the telescope because the information was such a contradiction to the worldview that they had. They'd rather not look and cling on to that worldview than face this new discovery, this new paradigm. David's body of work is an inspiration as he challenges science to expand and look at a new paradigm, one that includes the human experience in its richness and its fullness as well as the discoveries for the quantum universe and consciousness as a whole. Are you ready to look through the telescope and to explore the new paradigm of science and the human experience and consciousness and all the good stuff? I hope you are. Um, One thing I will say quickly before we begin, part of the new paradigm isn't that I sound slightly muffled. I had a slight technical issue. David, welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast. Uh, I want to begin with a, a really important question, which is, are you staying cool <laughs> during this heat? Wave? Well, actually, I live in southwest France, and until yesterday, it was extremely hot. <clears throat> uh, but today, it's mm. quite cool. It's about 23 and overcast. So um, the answer is that I'm I'm uh, perfect temperature. Excellent. Berlin's not caught up yet, so I'm still incredibly warm. Um yeah, anyway, I, so I, I reached out to you, having initially saw your talk at SAND, uh, so the Science and Non-Duality Conference, last year and, and last summer. Um, and I was incredibly impressed, um, and it left quite an impression on me, the, the overview of this new paradigm of science and, and exploring a different way of, I guess, bringing together science and, and spirituality. Um, in a way that is also of a you know personal and, and professional interest for me, I'd like to to explore how you you find yourself in this field and how you also looked at the issues within science and decided that a new approach was necessary. But I'd like to begin, I guess, right at the the beginning in terms of when you first knew that you you wanted to be involved in science and and what the curiosity was that led you there in the first place? Well, I suppose it it goes back to the um, late 70s, early 80s, uh, or even the mid-70s, when I was reading extremely widely, and I decided I was going to write a couple of books, and and they were going to be on death and the ethical implications of the near-death experience. So they came out eventually as survival, question mark, body, mind, and death in the light of psychic experience. And I changed the subtitle to Death as Transition in the new edition. And then Hole in One, uh, The Near-Death Experience and the Ethic of Interconnectedness, which is now Resonant Mind in its newer edition. <clears throat> and so the, 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 the question for me, um, that, or the point of departure for these books, was 
what exactly happens at death? Uh, is death the end of individual consciousness, or is it a transition to some other form of consciousness? And this is obviously a very critical question for all of us to ask ourselves, and indeed to contextualize our lives. <clears throat> and so I, I started um, you know, research on that, and I wrote most of the first book in the summer holidays uh, when I was teaching at Winchester College of, of 1981, and, and it came out in, in 1984, uh, eventually. And, and the, the, the book deals um, also with the history of philosophy and history of ideas about death and the nature of the human being. Uh, and in the second half, it looks at uh, apparitions, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and reports of survival. And then it tries to sum it all up. And the, 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 about the same time, uh, the near-death experience was... Um, becoming popular. And I, I read Raymond Moody's book almost as soon as it came out. I read it in a day, in fact. And I realized that this is going to be an extremely important field, um, which would be at the interface between neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, um, and you know, what's now called consciousness studies, but that, that, that mm -hmm. term didn't exist. So that was my that was my point of departure because you can see that in the near death experience you've got a meeting point of of science and spirituality if you like. Mm -hmm. And was that were you kind of motivated by by personal experiences into to study in the near death experience or was it just something like academically that surfaced as an area of interest because it was such a, a kind of inter section and an unknown as well well a bit of both um my mother was a sensitive um and had some interesting experiences and so that that was uh, that alerted me to um this sort of wider view my father was agnostic he, he didn't believe in anything mm. in particular um <clears throat> and at the same time in my last year at university i got interested in swedenborg uh, and I, I, I then joined the Swedenborg Society and joined its council. And I was president for a couple of years, about 20 years ago. Uh, and Swedenborg was an 18th century mystic who was also a scientist. He wrote a 700-page <clears throat> book on the brain. Uh, and so he, he was someone who was, as it were, at the interface between um, you know, science and spirituality in his own life and perception. And I think this is, this is for me, the the big question coming from so my background is very much the you know the subjective experience but also the way that a lot of science a lot of mainstream science is taken as gospel and there is or there appears to be a real in the mainstream view a, a lack of the subjective experience um and well, is that, that something yes. as well, like this, the, the conflict between that, that is, is something worthwhile exploring? Well, I think, I mean, I think they're complementary. <clears throat> um, but the, mm -hmm. the historically, this goes back to uh, the 17th century and the development of the mechanistic metaphor and the privileging mm -hmm. of the objective, so-called objective, third-person perspective, and where, whereby everything is depersonalized and potentially even dehumanized. And, and you're, you're looking at um, from the, the, the outside in, <clears throat> so that yeah. consciousness becomes um, the, uh, a function of matter in the brain. And that's, that's, that. So this whole way of thinking um, starts from the external world, what we call the external world, and then everything is actually um, taken back to matter. So it's matter that gives rise to mind, and it's brains mm -hmm. that give rise to consciousness. And this is exactly... Mm -hmm the the proposition which is is currently being scrutinized and under question but it isn't under question for 99 percent of conventional mainstream science and i think this i, I guess for people so i, I have a, a strong interest in in the science you know with spirituality and i know for some it's not necessarily, it doesn't appear as important or as, as closely linked to spirituality. For me personally, I find that for any, I, I have a, an intellect that needs some kind of um, validation, you know, to, mm. to spiritual experiences. And it was hugely affirming to discover the, the science that lies outside of the mainstream. Um, I know for me, and I, I think for people listening who maybe aren't, 
as as studied on the topic. The idea of the the, the separation between consciousness and the brain is is seems to be one key area that is is significant. Um, but also the idea of materialistic science and everything that I guess you know lies outside of materialistic science as a a worldview or a paradigm could you maybe explain what what materialistic science is and what the the alternatives are or the complementary uh, more expansive areas of science are to that for those who maybe don't have um, as much knowledge in that area yes I, I would say the complementarity is the is the right w- word to use um, mm. so that for instance um, you know, science is about quantification. I just said it was looking at from the outside in, whereas the subjective looks from the inside out. And and, and so the logic of that um, is that you would then, um, you know, assume that matter is primary and mind or consciousness is secondary. And that relates back mm-hmm. to what were called primary and secondary qualities in the 17th century. Um, anyway, the the... the that one of the complementarities that would, might be useful as an illustration would be um, the complementarity between quantity and quality, and so you can have a quantitative approach where you're find, trying to find out, you know, the numbers, the correlations, the statistics, all of which is very important, and, and then the qualitative approach would be saying, well, what 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 is it like to experience something, and mm-hmm. we, we know that obviously from our own um, immediate. Um, experience and um, but that that and then you would start looking at the different qualities of experience so for instance let's take the near-death experience as an example so quantitatively you could ask well what age are the people when they have it what circumstances are they in uh, what are the what's the structure of their experience how many what percentage of people have different elements of the experience are there more men than women um, what's the relationship between people who are near death and those who have near death experiences? What's the percentage there? And then qualitatively, you're looking from the inside, and so you're asking the experiencers, you know, what what actually happened to you? Well, I I, I came out of my body, and and then I went down a tunnel, and um, I saw a being of light, and I had a life review, and I met one of my deceased relatives, and then suddenly I woke up on the, on the table. Uh, and then you so you can you can also apply a quantitative um, aspect to those experiences too you know how many people see the light uh, how many mm-hmm. people have life reviews and so on and um, but what you're what you're uh, trying to do there is to see what the similarities are of, of the subjective accounts and if you if like me you've read hundreds of these then uh, after you've read they used to be they used to come in through letters rather than emails after you read a few hundred letters, um, you begin to see patterns emerging from those reports, and yeah. and and you get a sense of of their reality as well. And I, this is the the where the, uh, the richness lies as well in terms of most people relate to reality through through the experience obviously we i mean we all do in terms of our consciousness and and the direct experience of of living and if that is stripped away from the science as you mentioned earlier it can almost become inhumane or at least stripped of of meaning um and the the complement and the way of bringing in the subjective do you feel like that is something that is is lacking in in the mainstream view in terms well, of I, I think you have to ask you know what's the what's this what are the scope what's the scope and what are the limits of science mm. uh, and it depends what kind of science you're doing if you're doing quantitative science then it's all about quantities and statistics and correlations and so on and there's there's no there's nothing wrong with that um, but when you when it comes to consciousness and the nature of consciousness and its relationship to the brain and whether it's fundamental in the, in a, in a more meaningful sense than is currently it's currently thought to be um, then then you're sort of getting to the heart of the matter because um, as and i think what what's happening in philosophy at the moment um, is that a number of people are migrating um, away from strict scientific materialism to a more 
panpsychist view, which means that yeah. um, that that mind that matter is inherently conscious in some way. That there is some uh, that that you can't have one without the other. Um, this is a view which is put forward by a man called Philip Goff, G O F, from Durham University, and quite a popular book. And we had an, a webinar on that not so long ago. And then, then the, the the other move that people are making, and this would apply, for instance, to Eben Alexander and Dr. Eben Alexander and Mark Gober, who's just written a, a very good book called An End to Upside Down Living, <clears throat> and Larry Dorsey. You go for the one mind view, and you say that well, that actually there is only one mind, and Schrodinger uh, was saying this in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and that it's only the, that one mind that is conscious. And so we are conscious because the one mind is conscious and we are within the one mind and and so that's that's a view um that can accommodate you know psychic and uh, experiences mm-hmm. parapsychology mm-hmm. whereas the materialist view cannot accommodate these cannot um find any um any possibility that they might even exist mm-hmm. uh, and this is the basis of the skeptical movement which which simply says well th- these things are impossible in principle and therefore there must mm-hmm. be some naturalistic explanation um, that we can come up with or else we just explain it away and don't look at the evidence that for me is one of the most crucial points as well in terms of the the intersection between what the the you know the science and the, the kind of uh, theories in science and the the methodology itself but the relevance to an individual and with, with my history you know this was something where and i've i've reflected on this i've reflected on how how i internalized this materialistic worldview because i did because on some level i i dismissed any experience that lied outside of that and it wasn't like i i consciously chose to accept this model and i guess it's the mainstream view that had filtered down and and informed a lot of the material that i was i was digesting but i know when i was maybe mid to late teens um around that time i'd made a, a link between <laughs> being intelligent and intellectual and being of a materialistic and also atheistic view um but i think you know what you say about the the scope of science to contain certain experiences is is really important because if you have internalized the view of the material world or the material universe it strips away so much of the the human experience and then in in my experience makes you question your your reality so on the flip side i know when i started to discover more um about you know say post materialistic science or science that is more expansive in in nature it gave me more permission to rediscover that part of myself or those parts of of my my being that were unexplainable by by material science um and that's that's what i i feel is a nice link between the, the body of work that that you're you know you're working on um and the way that you're exploring science and also the 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 mental health um and that element and i'm curious just to to understand your view on how this mainstream view how that actually can influence an individual even if it is subconsciously how do you feel that this materialistic view affects culture and then the individual through the, the cultural messages associated with that particular world view well again the historical reasons um for for how this has all come about because the medieval period was to, was dominated by the catholic church and mm-hmm. uh, theology was known as the queen of the sciences now it's not obviously not it's not regarded as a science. Science was used more more broadly than it is now. Um, or was what we're talking about was in natural sciences, both the social sciences, <clears throat> and uh, so so that whereas um, a spiritual worldview was or religious spiritual worldview was taken for granted in in the medieval period, 
Um, with the shift to the mechanistic <coughs> worldview and, and what, what I've already been explaining, um, then what is now taken for granted in Western cultures is a, is a materialistic worldview um, backed up by um, the cosmic story involving the Big Bang and mm. random selection um, driving evolution. And, and the, 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 the um, uh, lack of any distinction between the human and the animal. Uh, so humans are just sophisticated animals. And so the, so the whole understanding of what a human being is um, has, has changed. Now, in relation to education, you're right. This is, um, especially in science education and medical education, um, the, the, the materialistic view uh, underpins and informs everything that, that they're taught in medical school and, and in science courses. And this was exactly the question that the founders of the Scientific and Medical Network were asking themselves in the early 1970s. And, and they were arguing that uh, science need not necessarily be based on a series of um, materialistic assumptions. There could be a science and that um, would be equally rigorous, but which would be based on a different set of assumptions. And the thing, the trouble is that these assumptions, these metaphysical assumptions, these ways of thinking, these models, these mechano me uh, uh, metaphors, they're all passed down without people realizing that they are actually taking them on. And, yeah. and, and so, for instance, the, the work on the metaphysical foundations of modern science goes back nearly a hundred years. In fact, probably goes back even further with William James. And, and, and yet, um, the, the average um, scientist and doctor learns nothing about philosophy of science and philosophy of medicine, nothing about epistemology, which is how we know, nothing about ontology, which is what's the nature of being in reality. And yet, um, science and medicine embody a metaphysic um, uh, and an ethic and an epistemology. And uh, you know, this is how you get to know things. And, and, mm. and this, this is the most extreme version of this is, is called scientism. And, and this mm -hmm. is an ideology rather than a, sci than, than a science. And it says that everything, that, including consciousness, can and will ultimately be explicable in terms of physical material principles. Yes. And it's that, really, that, that, um, that people in the Scientific and Medical Network and the Galileo Commission would dispute. It's that assertion um, that ultimately everything um, will be explained in material terms. And that this, is, this is a kind of culture cultural divide at the moment because if you look back in the history of religions and then you've got the contrast between the orthodoxy and heresies her heretics and gnostics and the gnostics in the early christian period were people who had immediate experience of oneness of transcendence mm -hmm. of the divine they didn't need any theology they didn't need a priest they didn't need an intermediary and, and 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 they 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 were experience led, if you like. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, mm -hmm. the church became doctrine and idea led, and and that really removes you from the experience. So you could say that, in that sense, um, the emphasis on doctrine and ideas paved the way for uh, changing the ideas, um, but still um, keeping the experience yeah. secondary. Yes, Th this is. This is also something that fascinates me, how it really is almost in science in, or scientism in stealth mode has become a new religion in that there is a, a dogma surrounding it. I really like the link that you that you make with um, almost reducing or minimizing the, the subjective experience, which goes against all the the understanding of Eastern or at least esoteric movements of, of inner work and, and looking at towards the self in terms of self-discovery and, and I guess exploring consciousness from the inside out compared to, to trying to understand it um, objectively. With this, this link between scientism and organized religion where would you say the 
self-exploration or looking looking within to, to understand and get answers would you say that there is a space for that in science in terms of the subjective experiences of meditation the so-called spiritual experiences or, or transcendence do you feel that there is a place in science for that wisdom to to inform and educate and and i guess spread spread wider in terms of the 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 impact that it has on on science well obviously um, it starts with the scientist and and so the science there's nothing to stop the scientists um, him or herself from pursuing spiritual disciplines spiritual practices and a lot of them do and and then um, what you're also referring to is contemplative neuroscience uh, and this this is actually a very promising area where um for instance the brain waves of nuns and monks and meditators are measured at the same time as they are meditating or using a spiritual technique and if they change the technique then um they then they would expect to see a change in the brain wave patterns at the same time a different correlation so so i think there's that that that's um that's 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 an avenue which is in full development at the moment richard davidson is probably um the, one of the best known researchers and uh, this has all been encouraged by the dalai lama with his mind and life institute which you may well mm-hmm. know about and then the other thing to say um and this is going back to the religious structure is there's always been a tension between the mystic and the prophet on the one hand who are experientially based and the priest which is about doctrine and ritual Uh, and so even even within christianity um, the, the mystics like eckhart and the the meister eckhart the that they're people who've tended to be um, branded as heretics um because they they they've set, they've privileged or they've emphasized the importance of their own experience indeed the primacy of their own experience yeah. and as i said before uh, if you have your own experiential access to the divine um you don't need the church and that's why the gnostics yeah. were so threatening yeah. to the institution yeah with well, this part of me will always have some kind of cons- conspiratorial element when it comes to the certain agendas around what is you know what the mainstream is how it's informed and and what drives that that certain message or that certain uh narrative and to me I, i i do feel that there's an element of and i don't want to say that people there's a, a kind of conspiracy in that there's a an intention to suppress consciousness itself but there is something in that material world view that is quite limiting in in terms of self exploration um and there is also then a freedom that can be found through consciousness and through through practices as meditation and yoga and and different um practices that explore consciousness but i feel that there's something to question around the the agenda of a, a certain world view in that it can be a, an easier form of control or at least influence do you see that there is within within this view that there are certain agendas at play and if if there are would you say that that you know they're related to the economy or or just more a case of a kind of um unconscious passing down of of a story that's not been so so questioned well it depends what area you're looking at i mean there is an inherent political dimension and therefore a power dimension um to any any social institution Uh, and the prestige that goes along with it and mm-hmm. and so um they they one of the ultimate i mean a good example of this actually is Brian Josephson because he's re- received the ultimate um prize for a scientist he won the nobel prize in physics in 1973 when he was only 33 um, mm-hmm. but his interest um in parapsychology um, and meditation has made him a kind of pariah um you know for his his colleagues because they just think he's just not very sound and this is this is entirely prejudice uh, on their mm-hmm. part and and uh, obviously the again and the the that I think there's an unconscious um element and um, that's inherited from the fight against the church because whereas 
the church used to wield ultimate power. Um, now it's science that, that, <clears throat> that wields that corresponding power and indeed is developing or can develop further uh, technologies that um, you know, can be used to manipulate and control um, people. But I don't see that mm -hmm. as a scientific agenda. I see that more as a as a political agenda. And, and the the um, ultimate example of that um, is likely to remain China, um, where um, the, the the people already tracked um, and minorities are persecuted and, and tracked um, relentlessly and, mm -hmm. and rounded up in their tens of thousands every week. I mean, with this, within the, the scientific community, I'm interested in the, the sense that it seems to me that certain scientists are almost ostracized if they have a view that doesn't match the mainstream and that it, it in terms of career progression or an expansion of ideas, it's almost easier if you go, go along with the status quo. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a good example of this is Rupert Sheldrake, who's the, mm. the, the he's he's the butt of enormous amount of criticism and sceptical hostility, and um, <clears throat> and in fact, next week um, we are having a, a webinar with him and Craig Viler, uh, mm -hmm. who's, who's written a book called Psy Wars, which is all about the manipulation of these this this data um, and the sceptical view that predominates on, on Wikipedia, and indeed on the TED talks. And so, so there is a, there is a political power that is it's not so much the materialists as such; it's skeptics as a group, um, which is what um, Charlie Tart quite rightly calls pseudo skeptics, because mm. a skeptic is somebody who doubts but looks at the evidence rather than dismisses the evidence and doesn't look at it at all, which is what yeah. a pseudo skeptic is. So there is a huge this, political agenda sorry, there. And also the other aspect of this, which is very important, um, is that there's a similar situation, which I was just looking at this morning, um, on Wikipedia entries on complementary medicine. They're all controlled by this pseudo-skeptic group called the guerrilla skeptics. And everything is, everything is defined as a pseudo-science. And, and, yeah. and that, that, that really is the, is the pharmaceutical agenda uh, which dominates um, biology and medicine, and, and it's extremely relevant to um, the debate that's going on at the moment um, in, in terms of what approach to health we we should be doing in order to promote our health. And in fact, we have a we have a uh, a um, <clears throat> webinar about that this very evening. Mm. And so, now these are all very topical. But as I say, you can't. T you can't extract science um, from its political context, and and the and the 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 fact that certain views are more powerful in their reach um, than others. I I think it's it's a good a good time to to actually reflect. It's something I, I'm, again I'm conscious we've not necessarily defined but to explore how how science is defined as a practice as a, a philosophy how would you define science in its, its purest terms well i'm not sure you can do that because there are many different sciences i mm. mean think of as astronomy for instance well its methods are 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 uh, peculiar to it neuroscience and um, has its own methods psychology has its own methods as a Social science, physics has its own methods, um, and so the 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 idea, of course, is is that experiments should be repeatable by anybody everywhere, and mm. um, under the same conditions, and um, and that itself um, is coming under a certain amount of um, scrutiny because the the objective view um, doesn't recognise um, the subjective component. Uh, even in the setting up and interpretation of experiments, mm -hmm. and, and so so the, the the what they find in parapsychology experiments um, is that sceptical experimenters will tend to get poor results, and open-minded um, experimenters will get better results, even mm. with the same subjects. And so the yeah. classic example of this was Marilyn Schlitz and and, and Richard Wiseman. And they both did exactly the same series of experiments with the same subjects, and each got 
um, you know, correspond results that corresponded to their their uh, existing view. Mm. And of course, this this is a this really upsets the apple cart because you can then see that the, that there's some sort of participatory entanglement and of the experimenter in the experiment which means that so, so far as human humans and consciousness is concerned i don't think you could apply this to um you know observations and galaxies and and which which means that the that the, the pure um divide between subjective and objective is actually not as pure um as it's it was thought to be mm-hmm. in other words you, you, you the, it, the the human element is inescapable yeah, and, and overlooked to to a, a degree that is is almost laughable in a sense that that you, you're trying if you focus too far on on the extreme of of the objective observer, you're stripping away the the human from the experience, and and almost then an element of scientism becomes looking looking towards science as this like mythical. Um, external entity that is infallible <laughs> and like there are no humans involved in the making or the the aspiration of science and and that in itself is is perhaps a blind spot well i think approach. the biggest blind spot um is the the fact that everything is mediated by consciousness mm. and so we couldn't actually formulate any universal laws or laws of physics laws of biology laws of evolution you know, without consciousness Mm-hmm. Which is why I think um, towards the end of his life, or in the early 1930s, he lived a long time, Max Planck said that, that consciousness is fundamental. You cannot get behind and beyond yeah. it. And, and, and that, you know, that's, that was said 90 years ago now. So, and, and, and it takes an awful long time for people to catch up um, mm. with, with these um, fundamental shifts of ideas. And this, so if, I feel we, we've explored lots of of different different areas um a few a few that i want to expand upon a little bit the first is around the idea of of science being an approach to ascertain knowledge we could say or wisdom that is is verifiable and to that degree i feel that a lot of eastern traditions such as like a Buddhist meditation practices or, or yoga or even certain um, traditions in the West, that they are a lot more scientific than people believe because they are actually a set of very clear instructions with an, an understanding. Here are the, the, the results of if you um, carry out these steps and you can verify for yourself. So would you say it's fair to, to argue that these practices in themselves are scientific in in nature well um it depends what the sense in which we use using scientific they're certainly rigorous um Mm -hmm. and they're certainly um methodical and and as you say and ken wilbur points this out in marriage of sense and soul um there there is a structure of do this as an injunction uh, and then you will be able to confirm this as a result and, and so the, that mm-hmm. that applies both to um, let's say yoga or meditation techniques, and and uh, scientific experiments. And so mm-hmm. the confirmation, uh, the confirmation in both cases is intersubjective, i.e., it's something which which is verified or confirmed independently by different people. So you you could you could do this uh, obviously in a meditation experiment. Than when you're looking both at neural correlates and of the quality of experience, and and so I, I think there's there is a, a, a again my friend Ravi Ravindra um, makes the same point in in relation to yoga and physics that they both have their they have their own rigor, um, <clears throat> but but one is a rigor applied to in, internal processes and the other is a rigor applied to external processes. <clears throat> and for me, this is a a really crucial understanding in the I almost don't don't feel that you have to approach the the psyche and mental health and spirituality from a different angle and when you try and bring the external 
or the purely biological or chemical or mechanistic into the psyche, that can lead to a lot of problems in terms of not making any sense of, of the human experience or at least limiting potential of, of what can be explored and, and understood. Um, I want to look at, so I, I, in a lot of the, the work that I cover, I, I often mention quantum physics and really discuss and, and explain why, why that's an area that I find particularly exciting in terms of the potential correlation between that and consciousness and, and spiritual practices. Um, could you give a, a brief background of initially the, the kind of breakthrough with, with Newtonian physics and, and what that is, and then the revelations in quantum physics and how they, I guess, um, explore or surface some really interesting insights around consciousness that put a lot into question in terms of the assumptions that we have about reality and about consciousness. Well, the, the Newtonian background um, is related to what I was saying earlier about the mechanistic worldview, although strictly speaking, Newton was an alchemist and mystic, and, and he, he wasn't a Newtonian in the way that Newtonians have subsequently been defined. Mm. And Jung also said, thank God I'm not a Jungian. <laughs> and and, and the, the, what the, the, one of the important points um, is the, the, as it were, the atomism um, built into um, the, the Newtonian mechanical view that, that basically everything is separate, and uh, and and so that's 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 the underlying sense, and 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 it it works through the interaction of parts, and the parts build up the whole. Uh, the, this picture is entirely reversed um, in relativity theory and more particularly quantum theory, um, where the whole, as it were, is primary. And, and interconnectedness is fundamental, and it's it, it's although there's a complementarity between the wave and the particle in quantum mechanics, and the the the, the sense is one of interconnectedness, non-separation, and entanglement. Mm. This is really what's important um, about, which is the picture of quantum mechanics, and this is why um, a lot of the pioneering physicists the 1920s and 30s were were also mystics or they were mystical in their approach mm. and schrodinger i think is the is the clearest example um, because he was influenced by hindu scripture as well and his his father um i think i'm right in saying was a professor of comparative religion um, and so he had mm. hindu scriptures in his library which schrodinger was able to uh, read as he was growing up and so the 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 that this mechanistic view uh, is still um, very much held in in mainstream biology, and and so there is there is such a thing um, called uh, quantum biology, where which emphasises you no know, complexity and connectedness. So that for me, um, you can see that, that the idea of the one mind um, uh, corresponds as a metaphor to the entanglement, interconnectedness, interdependence yeah. picture that you get from quantum physics. And it seems to me also that um, this is um, a fundamental insight that we need to take on board in order to, to for the planet to move forward um, yeah. in a constructive way. And I, what I did in my book, Hole in One, and which came out in 1990, was that last chapter I developed what I called an ethic of interconnectedness. And so I said you can see this in in a number of different fields. And so we talked about quantum physics. In biology, you see it in synergy, in symbiosis, you know, where organisms benefit each other, in mutual aid, in cooperation. Um, and then in psychology, you see it with the one mind and the collective unconscious. In ecology, you see it in, in systems theory and ecosystems. And so science, in fact, is full of um, as, as Fritjof Capra also points out, is full of metaphors of becoming an interconnectedness. And, and mm -hmm. if we could catch ourselves up as a culture and with this view and make it primary, 
and then we would see we would realize that we we are all embedded in the same life in the same consciousness in the mm. same system all part of the cosmic web indeed and and this with this this understanding and insight i find it incredible that when you look at these these revelations just how long ago they they were discovered and how how long it takes i believe um thomas is it thomas kern talks of the shift of a paradigm um yes he popularized and, that term thomas kuhn structural mm-hmm. scientific revolutions in 1962 and he he talks about the the how long it can take as well right in terms of the world view actually shifting even when there's a lot of evidence to the contrary view yes because you know people are are brought up in and invested in um the the existing worldview and structures and and you know, going back to an earlier part of our conversation it's a career limiting move it's a dangerous thing mm-hmm. so far as your career is concerned to step outside that and because then you may compromise your your own promotion and also your department will think you're going to compromise the the reputation of the department mm-hmm. and they don't want that so i mean a good example is the the way that Ed- edinburgh university handled the, the chair of parapsychology the coastal chair of parapsychology um because they basically managed to downgrade it and and sort of put it into a a, a minor part of the psychology department because the psychology department was concerned to maintain its five star rating and if mm-hmm. if the parapsychology was part of that well you can't publish positive parapsychology studies in mainstream journals <clears throat> they they with with one or two exceptions and then you get a backlash um, um after that um so so the that that's that so the system drives behavior and in this yeah. case it's the it's it's a very conservative university um system and and many universities will close down departments and courses that that they they think are are suspect in that view so for instance there was a history of esotericism um course at Exeter University which is closed down after the death yeah. of my friend Nicholas Goodrick Clark uh, another one on on the imagination and archetypes just closed down University of Kent mm-hmm. um the so the the universities are very very careful um you know, to try and <coughs> Uh, as it were keep their noses clean from a materialistic point of view yeah and their funding depends on it too you can't upset pharmaceutical companies if they're paying for your some of your research in your medical yeah. department well and this is when it particularly when it when it comes to mental health depression anxiety psychosis all these these non-ordinary experiences or um inner struggles and in a in a quest to to heal um what what really worries me is this idea of the purely biological mechanical perspective on these things like there's an imbalance in the brain um that there's no there's no necessary external or transcendent element to be in that i feel really strips strips the spirit away from these experiences and can be very limiting and actually exacerbate the problem rather than come up with a, a solution. Um yes one, one carry, carry on. Go on, sorry. Sorry, do go on. You know, no, and so the, the 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 what is potentially a spiritual emergency for instance would then be defined as a pathology. And and Yes, exactly. And, and the same same applies to um near death experiences of of um military veterans in the US that a lot of the personnel are not properly informed about the nature of these experiences and they just put them down to sort of were hallucinations and malfunction mm. of the brain but yeah. there's another there's another angle I'd like to bring in here which is complementary and unusual and something I've only just really um, learned about uh, and that's the the um the history of electricity and life there's a new book by Arthur Furstenberg who's um runs the 5G platform um, <clears throat> and it's 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 called an, um, the invisible rainbow i've got it here and <laughs> and it's a history of electricity and life so in the in the mid 19th century um 
when electricity was becoming very widespread, this coincided with the um, the, the the onset of what was then called neurasthenia. Um, and this was a man called Dr. George Beard, an American doctor. Uh, and it, he, the list of symptoms um, is exactly the same list of symptoms you get in electrosensitive people nowadays. And then what happened was that um, uh, Freud um, um, named the same symptoms anxiety neurosis. Mm. And so these these conditions where it actually does appear that there's an adverse effect of electricity or electromagnetic radiation or radio frequencies on the human organism, and these were the and ME and CA and so chronic fatigue and so on. These were just regarded as as just psychological, and so this, in a sense, is the is the opposite end um, of the argument uh, that 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 something um, which is in fact biological or in a vibrational mm. sense biological, is then dismissed as just psychological and you're told just to pull yeah. yourself together when there is in fact a, an important physiological cause behind yeah. it. And so I think there's an incredible blind spot um, that um, they, nobody, nobody training to be a doctor you know, studies the relationship between electricity and life. Mm. And, and this book shows that we should be connecting the dots, especially at this time. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it is it also does point out something which as a larger on a larger scale is that it's really important to to note even like from my perspective, it's important to note that it's not to um diminish the scientific meth- method or to say that a mechanistic approach in certain uh, certain circumstances is valuable. And I believe that to be the, the case as well with mental health. Like there are many things that you can do that boost mood, for example, mm-hmm. but they all as part of the greater whole complement. And if you're just overly focused on the biological, that could be an oversight in the, um, the spiritual elements or the, the more psychological and vice versa. And I yeah. think it's a really good example of that. Well, I think the the other <clears throat> another point to make um, or question to raise is the extent to which um, the mental health crisis is an indirect result of the scientific worldview. Mm-hmm. And so, in other words, if you're told that life is an accident, completely meaningless, and, yeah. when, and when you die, you die, and there's yeah. no point in it, it's just enjoy yourself while you're here. Um, yeah. That's what Mark Gober calls an upside-down view. Um, and he says that the main proposition which supports all this is is scientific materialism or physicalism, namely yes. that the that the brain gives rise to consciousness. Well, what if it's what if that's not true? Mm-hmm. And there's a huge raft of evidence and all the all the parapsychological evidence and, and the spiritual experience evidence um, that shows that there's there's ample re, uh, reasons for thinking that um, this view is if if at, at best incomplete, at worst mm. wrong. Yeah. Um, and that is, I think I'm particularly concerned for young people who just absorb yeah. this um, because that's what they're told. Um, and they don't necessarily have the resources to go and find out themselves. And this, this happened to Mark. Mark was a, a technology consultant and he had a kind of uh, quarter life crisis, which is what happens in his sort of late twenties. And um, you start asking, asking yourself about the meaning of life. Um, and and then he he discovered that everything he'd been t- told um, at Princeton about the mind and psychology and so on was actually very one sided. Um, yeah. And the more he looked, the more evidence he discovered, and and um, so he came to the opposite conclusion. Then his second mm-hmm. book is is all about the ethical and personal and spiritual implications of this. Well, I, I've not read it, but I have to read it because this really mirrors my my own journey. And I would say absolutely, without a doubt, the times early in, when I first started experiencing depression and, and further still a sense of hopelessness and a lack of meaning, it was very much informed by a sense that there is just nothing more to what mm. I'm experiencing, mm. that the universe is this huge void, that we're the only life form, that there's no direction, no element of transcendental benevolence like a nurturing force 
um, that infiltrated my psyche and I yeah. very much went through the same process. And, and for me, the, um, as I label it in, in the book is the, the stage of disenchantment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is crucial for me that, that state of disenchantment, I believe is the result of a materialistic worldview. And then on the flip side, in discovering, I just got to the point where my direct experience was informing me um, to a degree where I, I, I needed to let go of that worldview because it just it didn't make any sense. And then developed and had to piece together a new way of viewing things that, that related to the experiences I was having. And initially, it was it was a lot of difficult work, but eventually, it led to a reenchantment. Um, and, a and, a oh, it's, it's really weird, David, this process of, I'm fascinated by how much our, our concepts of reality then shape our reality and, and how much is being informed, you know, subject object in, in almost like a cyclical manner. But the more that I was having these experiences, I was then discovering, different either theories or findings or philosophical approaches that back them up that then seem to amplify the way that I was perceiving things like it, it's like the almost like an intellectual permission <laughs> mm. and a certain worldview this kind of mechanistic um, materialistic worldview can put a lock on that and it can it can really strip you of a lot of the experiences that are the most enlivening and the most um, heart, like life affirming and just heartfelt. Um, so I must, I must read that book. Must read yes, that book. well, it's only just come out. And if you go to mm -hmm. markgober.com, um, then you'll, you'll, you can find out about that. And he's also done some very good podcasts. Yeah, this, this is... Um, I mean, partly I'm, I'm talking from, from my experience, but I do see this as borderline, if not already an epidemic in at least I know in people in my age group, so many people are disenchanted. So many people have a lack of meaning. I, I read this in the, in the Galileo report. I, I was really interested in that take on how science can contribute to meaning or a lack of, a lack of meaning. But I do see this on a deeper level, on a, a human level, as, as important as it is for the kind of frontiers of science, I think for our general well-being, our general happiness, we are, we're kind of uh, numbing a lot of our, our capability if we subscribe to that worldview. Um, I know when I was really, really young, I was incredibly sensitive incredibly tuned in but then over time you get told oh that's just in your mind where you've got a wild imagination you begin to suppress it and it's almost like this process of re-enchantment um which i was emboldened by the science behind it then allowed a rediscovery of those those kind of lost parts of the self yes indeed no i think that's that's right and i think it's a it's an important insight to they're broadcast in, in that sense because people don't often look as far as you know the, the metaphysical framework that we take for granted mm. you know, which which determines our outlook on life yeah and we and that's what i'm i'm intrigued by like how much that filters down in terms of the the messages that we internalize um and you know, this fear, I, I'm, I'm in an interesting position because I can be my own biggest critic and my, my process of quote unquote spiritual awakening was, was quite difficult because of the views that I, I'd held in my intellect. And it was only through meditation I could kind of loosen that. But I feel that there's almost a fear of ridicule. And I mentioned earlier about how I'd made the association between atheism and rationality and intelligence and like any view that is outside of that is somehow um, naive or wishful thinking. And then you go a bit deeper and you realize like, actually, if you explore the fabric in even more depth, then it becomes, it's like full circle. Then you can become re-enchanted with it. Um, I'm, I'm, 
There's so many questions I want to ask, basically. <laughs> so many questions I want to ask and areas I want to explore. But, but one thing I'd like to just bring back is the, the exploration of consciousness and the big assumption, the number one assumption that I think most people have without questioning is that consciousness is created by the brain for reasons we, we discussed around mechanistic science and the history around that and, and biology and, and these disciplines. Um, if following these, these theories or these insights through science, such as panpsychism, which I understand to be the, the theory that each individual atom has an element of, of consciousness, what would be the implications with the one mind theory or the idea that consciousness is primary, what do you feel would be the implications of that if it was readily accepted in how it could influence our approach to viewing reality? Well, I think I, I kind of spelled this out in my book, Hole in One, and, and, and Mark mm. Gober you know, presents almost identical arguments in his book that I've just been talking about. I mean, to the extent that um, you take on board the fundamental nature of the one mind, one consciousness, one life, then we are we are all part of that and intrinsically related to each other. And the ethic that comes out of it is the ethic of the golden rule, which is that you treat others in the way that you would like them like them to treat you, or you don't yeah. treat others and the silver rule in the way you don't you don't want to be treated yourself. And so this is this implies reciprocity, it implies mutual aid, it implies mutual support. It implies that the interests of the whole are in fact primary over the interests of the part or the interests of the planet are primary over the interests of nation states, which is exactly mm -hmm. the opposite of what we got at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and so the, 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 uh, this is what um, Irvin Laszlo calls a planetary ethic. This is what we need mm -hmm. to arrive at. And, 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 or an ethic of interdependence, an ethic of interconnectedness. And if, if, we, if we took this really on board, then we would realize that, um, that, that the, the constructive way or the constructive principle on which to base um, a political system is love, yeah. um, is, is the whole, not power, or, yeah. um, but power, power with, but not power over, um, yes. you know, which is where you're, you're suppressed. Um, but the, the, the materialistic outlook uh, means that a lot of people think it's all about number one, it's all about your country, it's all about your company. In other words, the interests of the part are primary, not the interests of the whole. So we'd have a total reversal of this if we really took on a planetary ethic of interconnectedness corresponding mm -hmm. to you know, the, the, the metaphysics behind quantum theory, which we were discussing before, or indeed mm -hmm. the mystical worldview. I'm just wondering as well how much of an impact on the materialistic worldview, how much that has an impact on materialism in terms of seeking happiness through the acquisition of things. There has to be a very strong link between that. Well, I think it's the yes, it's the it's the economics and um, mm. economic implications of that view, and um, and also sort of maximizing your satisfaction, maximizing your happiness. Um, which doesn't mean to say that you do this in service of the whole, in service mm. of other people. Yeah, it really is. It's, um, it's a huge, huge topic of exploration, I think, for for individuals. And that's a, a big... It's the reason I, I discuss it a lot, because I feel that it, it really benefits an individual to at least have more information on alternative stories about existence and how that... that really creates a a drip down effect in the way that you view yourself the way that you view your potential your inner experiences and 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 further still the kind of freedom that you're able to have like if i back in the day where i really felt completely separate and like like you mentioned a kind of you know there's no real inherent meaning. I'm here to exist and there's nothingness. <laughs> that is an extremely limiting way of being and, and perceiving. Um, and I, I feel there's a lot that can, you know, to get really excited about with, with these, these discoveries in, in, 
in science, more recent but ancient traditions from from a very long time ago. Um, you touch upon interconnectedness as a very important topic, and I want to ask you a question to to answer from one with your kind of scientific hat on, and then one just from a very um, personal perspective, which would be how would you you define consciousness from a a scientific perspective and then from a personal perspective in terms of your own inner experience? Well, there are multiple meanings of consciousness, such as there are multiple meanings of mind and multiple meanings of soul. Now, it depends on the context in which you're using the term. And and the, the, so from a, a psychological point of view, uh, you might say, well, it's the contents of the mind uh, is is consciousness or it's it's the neurons firing from a physiological point of view it's the electrical signals from a neuroelectric point of view or neurochemical point of view i mean they're, they're, those are just the the um that's the phenomenology if you like that's what it looks like that's what it, mm-hmm. that's what you can measure <clears throat> and but the it's the experience of every human being and that consciousness is is the most immediate um facet of our lives uh, underlies everything uh, and so the the, the the view from inside um, is very different from the view from outside. And then there are different types of outside view, depending on which discipline you're looking at. And what have, have you, in terms of your own exploration, do you have a meditation practice, like a spiritual practice that you, you kind of inquire Yes, in fact, I'm doing a I'm doing a um, a meditation and positive psychology course at the moment, um, which is um, run by a man called Jeffrey Martin, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and he he runs something called the Finders Course, and this is a, a research project as well as being um, a practice, and and I'm finding it very interesting. It's been it's been really enjoyable talking to you on on this topic, David, because it it's really important, but it also highlights the how close we really are to science as a discipline and as a structure and as a as an institution and how much it actually influences our lives whether we realize it or not um and how it directly can influence our our well-being and and the way that we approach living generally um so thank you so much thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, I really appreciate it. And I would, of course, love to have a, a further discussion with you at some point. Great. Well, I would look forward to that. And um, thanks very much indeed, Ricky. Thank you for tuning in to the Mind That Ego podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Feel free to share widely, especially with your skeptic friends. That would be much appreciated. Uh, for more information, there are some links in the show notes please subscribe on your favorite platform you can find more content on youtube at mind that ego at mindthatego.com and if you've not yet got your copy head to mindthatego.com slash mindsets hyphen for hyphen mindfulness when you join the newsletter you'll be able to get a free copy of the book which includes what I call the enchanted worldview, which is heavily influenced by the topics we've discussed today. David has read the book and referred to it as a significant contribution to the field. And I don't know about you, but after this conversation, I'm fairly convinced he knows what he's talking about. Just saying. (laughs) Anyway, until next time, look after yourself and I'll be back very soon with a new episode.